As we come now before the very Word of God, would you turn in your Bibles, if you'd like to read along with me, to the book of James in chapter 5. This is James's letter, the, the fifth chapter. We are very close to the end of this letter now, but not quite. As you turn there, before we, before we read, would you please pray with me? Lord God, we have heard from you in the very mouth of Jesus that we should ask and it would be given to us, that we should seek and it will be found. Lord, as we open the door of your word now, would you show your truth to us? By your spirit, would you remove any resistance within us? any sin or separation that would keep us from you, but would you pierce our hearts with your word and give us a good confidence to follow you? We ask your grace now in Jesus' name. Amen. This is James in chapter 5. We'll take up a number of verses here toward the end, almost curious to the, to the last ones, but we'll begin in James chapter 5, verse 13. James 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. This is the word of God. Now, as we follow James into this final lap, of his letter, he's turning here to his last major topic that he wants us to hear, which is the topic of prayer. Prayer. And there are lots of different types and purposes of prayer in the Bible, many of which James touches on here. So just briefly, there are, there are prayers of intimacy in which we speak to God just to speak to him. There are prayers of lament in which we cry out to God with our aches and our struggles. There are, there are prayers of adoration, sort of love letters to God in which we speak to him, our love for him. There are prayers of celebration, which are often uh, sung where we just are happy to be with him. There are prayers of intercession, in which we pray to God on behalf of someone else. 
There are prayers of confession, which we do often, where we acknowledge our sin before God. And in fact, James gives a lot of attention to confession here, but we'll put the pause button on that piece because it's a big enough aspect of this text that we're going to have to save that for next week, how sin and confession is all bound up in that. We'll save that for later. James's main focus here, the main sort of prayer that we see is prayer of supplication. We call these supplication prayers. In other words, when we ask God to supply our need. And just a general observation before we begin to unpack how James looks at supplication prayers here. Supplication prayers tend to be by far our most common prayers. Both personally and generally in the church, too. I'd venture to guess, I don't know this is true, just a a guess, thus saith Nathan, uh, that, that supplication prayers, where we just ask God for things, probably outweigh all the other types of prayers that we might offer him combined. And if that's the case, if we really have so much weight on our supplication prayers, then things have fallen out of balance. I mean, can you imagine if you had a particular friend who, whenever that friend comes and talks with you, most of their conversation to you is them asking you for things? We might feel a little strange about that. Maybe start to wonder if that person is just in relationship with me for what they can get out of me. And the same may be true in our relationship to God, at least in the ways that we speak to him. Now, the scripture does not discourage us from asking God to supply our need. In fact, very much the opposite. James here is calling for us to pray, calling for us to ask God in a way that's good. And even Jesus over and over and over emphasized to his disciples that they were to ask God for things. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full, he says. Even toward the the last days and even hours of Jesus' life, Before he goes to the cross, Jesus doubles down on this command for them to ask. He tells them repeatedly to ask God. It's almost as if Jesus is anticipating the need that they're about to have, the struggle and distress they're about to experience, and reminding them to go to the Father often in prayer, to ask him for help frequently. So if our problem is, if we're seeing some sort of overemphasis on supplication prayers, our response should not be to ask God less. It's that we would pray to God in other ways more. We don't want to lower our supplication down to the others. We want to raise up our, our praises, raise up our laments, raise up our, raise up our confessions, all these other forms, so that they are up on level with our supplication prayers. Otherwise, if we are mainly supplication people, we become prayer leeches that only suck out, only take, instead of offering up to God. There's just a bonus. All that said, James wants us to ask. 
He focuses on supplication prayers. In fact, most of the time here, he's specifically focusing on our particular response, asking for a particular thing. That is, we're to ask in response to sicknesses. Did you notice that? The main focus here is when we experience sickness. So he starts out this section, are you suffering? Pray. Are you happy? Sing, which is a type of prayer, just with notes involved, okay? And and then he says, are you sick? That's the third question, the last question. And then the rest of the text is unpacking this long response to, what if we're sick? What if I am sick? Part of the response to that sickness involves uh, elders, involves anointing, involves confession. We're just going to unpack all of that next week. I'll save that for another time. The central response to sickness here, however, is not, go get you a doctor. Are you sick? Go get a doctor. It's not, are you sick? Who's got some ibuprofen? You might also want those things. I often do. But are you sick? Is anyone sick? Pray. Pray. Ask God and he will raise you up. Are you battling cancer? Pray. Are you wrestling with some ongoing depression? Pray. Are you struggling with panic attacks or post-traumatic stress? You pray. Are you in the ICU or have pneumonia? Sorry, it's real, you know, today. Pray. And you might notice, you might notice that James is not mainly calling us to pray in regard to sickness for ourselves. Not that it's wrong to do so. He just says, pray for one another. Verse 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That is, if someone in our community is sick, we all pray. Now, here's what I want us to look at. The reason he gives for calling all of us to pray is in the very next sentence in verse 16. Let me read it. Look for, listen for the reason. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Here's the reason. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. The reason for our praying is that it is powerful, that our prayers are effective. So that's our focus for today effective prayer. Now, the big question is, how? How is prayer effective? In my office, there are a lot of books on prayer. There's just a lot of books, period. But there's a lot of books on prayer, and I just went through and was looking at the covers of them this week. And and they all have different subtitles. Most are called prayer, and then they have some sort of other thing. So here's a list of some of the books. Prayer, Experiencing Awe and Intimacy with God. Sounds good. I want that. Here's here's another book. Prayer, 
finding our way through duty to delight. Hmm. Okay? Here's another one. Prayer, the great adventure. <laughs> Ooh. But the, the one that struck me the most, these are just titles of other people that have written uh, books. One that struck me the most had a very revealing subtitle because it asked a question instead of making a statement. Here's what the title of the book is. Prayer, does it make any difference? Prayer, does it make any difference? In other words, does my prayer actually do anything? Is it effective at all? Have you ever wondered that? I mean, it's a common, it's a common question. Especially if we believe, which we do, especially if we believe that God knows everything. That God plans everything. That God ordains everything. If all that's true, you know, what good is it to pray? This is a very old question. Uh, many people have written about it, but, but an old uh, theologian named Origen from the third century wrote, wrote a little treatise called On Prayer. And so this is, you know, uh, you know 1,700 years ago. And, and in that treatise, he draws out some of the main objections to prayer. He says, if God foreknows the future, and if God's decrees about the future are fixed then prayer is in vain. It's useless. Why pray then? That's a struggle for a lot of people, and, and some folks get stuck in a philosophical rut here. It's easy then to lose our desire to pray or our hope to pray. It's easy to become cynical about it. But there are some pushbacks about this feeling. You know, C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis is always helpful, right? Uh, C.S. Lewis was writing some letters, just casual letters back and forth with his brother, and apparently this issue of prayer came up where he points out some of the inconsistencies we have in our thoughts about prayer. This is what he says to his own brother. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes, the efficacy, or the effectiveness, the efficacy of prayer is at any rate no more of a problem than the efficacy of all human acts. So, for example, if you say, well, it's useless to pray because providence already knows what's best and will certainly do it, then why isn't it equally useless and for the same reason to try to alter the course of events in any way whatsoever? Why ask to pass the salt? Or why book your seat in a train? Do you hear his logic here? You know, even if we believe that God providentially wills all things, that he does whatever it is that he wills, even if we believe that, we still intuitively affect the world in lots of practical ways. Pass the salt, I say. And then I pick it up, and I pass it. I, I, I book train tickets, he says. His argument is, why couldn't prayer be just exactly the same as these? It's just another way that inside of God's providence, according to his will, we are actually moving the world. C.S. Lewis is C.S. Lewis. He's not the word of God after all, but he's in line with what James tells us. 
James tells us that prayer has a real effect on the world. Prayer is not just some sort of psychological placebo effect. Prayer is not just so that I will gain some sort of internal sense of peace. I gave it to God and now I feel better. Prayer is not just that I'm learning something about God, that I'm learning to kind of surrender and and give things over to God. It may also do those things, but, but James mentions here actual effects. People are actually healed by the prayers. Rain is actually stopped and then started back up again by the by the prayers. There's a real effect on the world outside of myself. There are numerous examples of of effective prayer in the scripture. Hannah was barren and prayed to God that she would be given a child. And the Lord gave her a child. Joshua, in the middle of battle, prayed to God that the sun would be stopped. And God stopped the sun. Hezekiah prayed when he, little Judah, kingdom of Judah, was uh, being pushed against by, by king, uh, the king of Assyria and his whole, whole armies, cried out to God that the Lord would save them, and the Lord struck down their army. God still foresaw these things, He still foreordained all of these things by his decree, and yet at the same time, almost paradoxically, prayer is effective. I don't need to understand how, but I need to understand that it's true. Prayer does things. When when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, for example, we know the Lord's Prayer because we say this all the time, right? Right? Right before he he tells them the Lord's Prayer, when he teaches them to pray, he says a few things about prayer. Don't pile up words on top of words, he says. But then he leans into this tension about what God knows already beforehand. Matthew chapter 6, verse uh, 8. Jesus says, Your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and so on and so on. To hear the order? Your father already knows before you open up your mouth about it. But that is not a reason for neglecting to pray. Your father knows what you need, so ask him. He knows what you need, so open up your mouth to ask him to supply your need. So listen to me now. If you are now or have ever been tempted to be discouraged or lazy in your prayers, because you think, oh, God already knows and he's going to do it all anyway, put those thoughts out of your mind. That comes more from Satan than from God. God calls you to pray so that you may be healed. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. God has chosen to do his work most often through the prayers of his people. So don't miss out on that. Now, how 
exactly does James guide us? If we, if we now agree a prayers, prayers are effective, how does James guide us here in effective prayers? James gives us one example from the Bible to illustrate uh, what effective prayer looks like. He, he references the prophet Elijah here. Uh, the guy who prayed that rain would stop, and it did, who prayed that later prayer, you know, rain would resume, and it does. God granted his prayers. So that's the illustration. We want to then look at three things that we're to learn from Elijah and his prayers that will be instructive for us. I know I've just now given you the outline, three things, and we're halfway through. Trust me, I won't drag this on forever. Three things, though, that we can learn from Elijah and his prayers. Here's the first. Elijah was righteous. Elijah was righteous. He says it here in a roundabout way. The verse, at the end of verse 16, the prayer of a righteous person has power as as it's working. And then he talks about Elijah. Which tells us that the effectiveness of prayer is linked to righteousness. Let me tell you something quick about this. The Lord does not receive every prayer. The Lord does not receive every prayer. He only receives the prayers of the righteous. It's many places in Scripture talk about this. It's been sung about poetically in Psalm 34, just in case you don't believe me. Let me prove it. Psalm 34, verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are toward their cry. Next verse. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. He hears one, he cuts off and is against the other. Now, let me clarify a few things. Righteous here does not refer to a person who is sinless, a person who is without sin. If that were the case, there would be nobody in that category except Jesus Christ himself, okay? Nor does righteous here mean just a person who's pretty good. They do more good than bad. That's not the intent. A righteous person here is one who belongs to God. A righteous person is a person who is in Christ by faith. That's why James calls the prayers of of the righteous here in verse 15 of James, prayers of faith. So the logic is, without faith, there can be no righteousness. And without righteousness, there can be no effectiveness. All of this, righteousness and effective prayers, must all be rooted in faith. It must come from faith. So what we heard earlier uh, about the paralytic man who was raised up, all of it, he's forgiven of sin and he's raised to walk as a result of his faith, of their faith. Let me try to be as clear as I can about this, because there's one other thing to add about this. If we are people of faith, if we are righteous in Christ, and we bring our prayers to God, that does not, however, mean that God will always grant our prayers. 
It doesn't mean if I just have faith, I'm going to get at everything exactly as I ask it. Faith also requires that I am, as I ask, submitting myself to the will of the Father, knowing that his will is better. So Christ was, true, is, was, is truly righteous, a righteous man, a righteous person. And when Christ prayed to the Father right before he went to Calvary, he prayed to the Father that the Father would remove this cup from me, if it be your will, he said. And that prayer was not granted. The cup was not removed from him. So if you pray and do not receive what you ask for, if you pray for healing from sickness and no healing comes as a result of your prayer, don't assume that there's some failure of faith within you. Okay? Don't assume that it's a result of of having sin inside of you that somehow is keeping your prayer from God. Perhaps that's the case, but that may not be the case. Let me put it this way. This is the last thing I'll say about righteousness. Righteousness in Jesus. Righteousness is a requirement, but not a guarantee of effective prayers. Righteousness is a requirement, but not a guarantee of effective prayers. That's the first thing. Elijah, his righteousness. Let's look at the second thing we learned about Elijah. Elijah was, in this text, like us. Like us. Verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I mean, one of the difficulties about using illustrations based on, you know, Bible people, you know, Elijah and Hannah and Ruth and Hezekiah and Joshua and all these people, what, when, we, when we use these people as examples, even if I know in my head that they're real people in history, sometimes they still feel to me as some sort of larger-than-life character. These are some sort of, like, unreachable superheroes that are on some spiritual level that I will never even be able to touch. James makes a clear point to press against that idea. He says, Elijah was a man like us. He is like you. If, if we read through the account of Elijah in the Old Testament, in First and Second Kings, which we did in uh, the spring uh, Bible study, if we read through all of what we know of Elijah, we see some extraordinary events. We see, you know, there's rain stopped on command, there's fire falling down from heaven, there's even the dead raised at, at one point. We see extraordinary things, but at the same time, most of what we see about Elijah is very ordinary. We watch Elijah wrestle with depression, fear, doubt, isolation, anger, rejection, apathy, disobedience, despair. We see it all. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. The thing that was extraordinary about Elijah was not in himself. It was in his God. And we serve that same God. 
You know, we're not all called to the same prophetic office, obviously, that Elijah was called to. But if you're a Christian, if you right now sitting in this room are in Jesus and the Holy Spirit is in you, then you are far more similar to Elijah than you are different. Your prayers are very much like his. And you are called to pray as Elijah prayed. That's the second thing that we learn from him, that he is like us. Third and final, we're on our final stretch here. Elijah was fervent. Fervent. It's in verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. Some of you, if you're reading in other translations, might see that phrase translated as he prayed earnestly. Literally, the, the phrase is just, in prayer he prayed, which is an old Hebrew way of conveying some sort of intensity or persistency in his prayers. When you think about persistent prayers, maybe some of you are already going here in your mind. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus tells about the, the widow who's persistent. And she goes before this judge of the city who's kind of a, a jerk in the parable. But the widow keeps going and asking him every day. We, you might call it nagging. I don't know what. But she goes every day and asks him for the same thing over and over and over. Again and again, she appeals for justice from him until finally the judge relents and says, okay, I'll give you what I want, what, you, what you're asking for. Jesus tells us that parable not because God is a jerk who is reluctant to give us what we ask for. Luke tells us the point of that parable is to remind us to pray and not lose heart. That we're to be fervent in our prayers, frequent in our prayers, even if they are the same prayers again and again. Because this is especially true when it comes to healing, isn't it? You know, some sicknesses are short, I got a fever, and the next day I was fine. But some sicknesses are very long. And we have to keep praying fervently for healing. When we pray for healing from sickness, that healing may not come immediately. It might not come for years even. It may not even come at all. And we submit to God's will and wisdom that his plan is better than what we know. But we keep praying fervently in faith that the Lord would heal. I want us to see, as we close, just what this looked like when Elijah prayed fervently. He prayed that the rain would stop, but when he prayed for the rain to come back, it looked a little bit different. We'll close with this. This is in 1 Kings chapter 18. Listen to the way this occurred when Elijah prayed for God for the rain, to God for the rain to, to, to return. 1 Kings chapter 18, here's the account. Verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And Elijah bowed himself down to the earth, and he put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now and look toward the sea. And the servant went up and looked, and he said, 
There's nothing. There's nothing. Elijah said, go again. There's nothing. Seven times, go again. There's nothing, go again. There's nothing, go again. There's nothing, go again. There's nothing, go again. And the seventh time, the servant said, Behold, a a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up and say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it's working. So keep going to God. And do not give up or lose heart until you see that little cloud rising from the sea. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you grant to us this sort of persistent confidence? We know when we bring prayers to you that we're not to be presumptuous or demanding of you, but Lord, would you make our, our prayers faithful and submitted to you? Would you cause us to be bold in faith that we would pray and not doubt And Lord, whatever would be your will in the ends of these things, would you be honored when you heal as a result of our prayers? Lord, we trust all things to you and give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.